I wanna, I wanna do this right. What's good, 11 o'clock? How you doing, Rocky Pig? Oh. oh, it is good to be with you once again. If you're here for the first time, you are probably incredibly confused. And so let me start off by saying, my name is Dre, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak. And, and before we jump into our time of teaching, let me take a few moments and kind of explain what exactly is going on. So I'm coming back from uh, several months of a medical leave. I stepped out of my role here at Rocky Peak back at the very beginning of August. Now the Reader's Digest version of everything is that for the last nine years or so, I've been uh, dealing with some significant chronic physical health issues. And over that period of nine years, they've slowly been deteriorating. About a year ago, last October, we began to notice that the deterioration began to accelerate at a high rate. And that led to the end of this last spring in which it hit a crisis point and my body gave out on it that forced me to have to step out of not just here but essentially step out of my life and so with that being said I'm excited to be here and I want to share a few things with you I'm here because in the time that I've been gone the Lord opened some beautiful doors that led me to some new doctors and specialists that had been able to build on the work over these last nine years I've seen some incredible doctors I've been poked prodded had things put in me out of me beyond belief but it was this summer that the Lord finally led to two particular ones that were able to pinpoint and make a significant difference in my health. And so I'm feeling better. And so that's what leads me to be here. But before we go into our time of teaching, I gotta acknowledge that these last like four months have been significantly hard on me and my family. And it's been in this trial that the Lord has taught me some incredible truths and I wanna share that with you. And some of you are gonna be able to relate as you've gone through your own physical health issues, but the reality is many of you are gonna be able to relate not on the physical side necessarily, but these I believe are true in any extended prolonged season of suffering and darkness in which you don't see a way out. And so while I'm gonna keep the language personal and talk about I and me and my health, I hope that the Lord encourages you through this. And so the first thing that the Lord taught me to be true is that going through a physical health crisis absolutely breaks you. This absolutely broke me in every way imaginable. It broke me physically. There were periods where I couldn't get out of bed, when my body wouldn't work right, when the only sensation was pain when because of that, I couldn't do any of the things that I would normally do that had defined me. I had to step out of my role here at Rocky Peak. I've been gone longer now than I have in the last 21 years I've been part of this church. I couldn't be a husband. I couldn't be a father. I couldn't even watch TV or read because the stimulation hurt too much. It broke me emotionally. When you're in a prolonged period of suffering, it's hard to carry that for a long time, isn't it? When I couldn't be a husband, when I couldn't be a father, when I couldn't be a pastor or anything else, I was like, what do I have left? It weighs on you. There were periods where I, significantly, where I truly believed, I don't think I'm ever going back to Rocky Peak. I don't think I can. There were periods in which I truly believed my family should cut loose from me because they would be better off. It breaks you spiritually. 
in the darkest moments of your soul, you sit there going, I have always believed that Jesus is good. Do I believe that now? Ultimately, it breaks your identity. It breaks every conception of who you had, of who you believed yourself to be. And I remember I had read of this metaphor that we all hold a metaphorical picture of what our life should be like, an idealized version of our life, and we expend all of our energy and desires to reach that picture. And when unexpected trials and suffering comes in, it's like we're thrown off the trajectory. It's like we're in this match with suffering that's trying to remove that picture and we're fighting, no, this is my life. This is what I want. That's the picture. Give it back to me. And often I have found myself saying, it is the suffering that is trying to remove this picture from me. But what I found to be true and what I wrestled and struggled with, it was not the suffering that took my picture. It was Jesus that took that picture out of my hands. And I really had to wrestle with why. But I came to discover that he took that picture out of my hands, as he does with all of our pictures, and he handed me a new one, one that was radically different than the one I was holding before, but one that was bigger and deeper than I could possibly imagine. And that leads me to the second thing I learned to be true. What does Jesus do when we are absolutely broken? He doesn't necessarily put us back together. He completely resurrects us. But not in the way we think. See, my recurring prayer, my family's recurring prayer, many of your recurring prayers, Lord, immediately heal him. Remove this from him. Beautifully, so many of you prayed, let him have Lazarus get up and walk out moment. And that is what I wanted. That is what I desired. And what I've come to find out is that was not God's will for my life. That was not God's will for my physical pain and suffering. And I can look on that truth now and go, that is the most beautiful gift the Lord could have given me. Because when the Lord wanted to resurrect and heal me, it wasn't necessarily physically. He wanted to resurrect my heart. He wanted to resurrect my character. He wanted to resurrect my identity and reteach me that he is good. He is not good because he will lead me to a destination that is free from suffering. But he retaught me that Jesus is good because in the darkest moments of my soul, as I'm curled up in the fetal position, sobbing my eyes out of my bed, he is there crying, comforting me, reminding me that I am not abandoned. He gave me a deeper vision, somebody very dear in my life, sharing their own physical health traumas, shared with me the time the Lord did this in her life, that in the time when she couldn't get out of bed, the Lord clearly told her, if this is all she can be from now on, then she will be the best version of that she can because she has Jesus and that is enough. I didn't know if I was ever going to come back here. And that would have been okay because who I am in Jesus is enough. I didn't know if I was ever going to get out of that bed and walk and play and run with my family again. But that was okay because that would have been enough. 
And so to God's grace, he did give me some healing and that leads us to where we are. And so internally, it's been beautiful. Physically, I'm getting there. While I've progressed in a long way, I still have a long way to go. There's still a long road ahead of me. And so Michael talked about this last week, that as I'm re-engaging, I'm slowly re-engaging. I'm coming back first as a teacher right now. You're going to see me a little bit more again on the weekends. I'll likely poke my head and teach into other ministries that ask um, as we go in. But I haven't gone back to any other of my responsibilities yet. If you've emailed or called me in the last four months, I have not gotten it. If you email me anytime in the next four months, I am not getting it. <laughs> Before I move on, two things. One, Rocky Peak, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for your prayers because they made a difference. If you don't believe in the power of prayer, when the Lord was healing my heart, one of the biggest turning points was the day after the 24 hours and, and encounter service. I want to thank you for your cards. I want to thank you for uh, your messages. I want to thank you for how well you took care of my family in that. I also want to shout out that the doctors that I was finally able to see, the specialists, came from you. And so I want to specifically shout out and say thank you, Adam and Crystal Black, Steve and Christy McCormick. Thank you for what you did as we went in. And if you're brand new, if you've never been to Rocky Peak before, I want to let you know what kind of community you just walked into. See, I've been on staff at Rocky Peak for 17 years. And for 17 years, I have watched you time and time again stand with one another in the darkest seasons of the soul. I have watched you and life group after life group be in the hospital, hold the hands as they sobbed, pay for kids' dental bills when there was no money to, show up in the darkest place. Rocky Peak did not step up because I'm a pastor at a church. Rocky Peak stepped up because that's what this community does. You loved me very well because you are very aware of our king that loved you well first. And so the last thing I want to say about my health before we go into our time of teaching is that many of you know that lifelong, I have been a very faithful San Francisco 49ers fan. <laughs> and I find it really interesting that in the nine years that my health began to deteriorate, their performance as a team began to deteriorate. <laughs> and now that I'm slowly getting better, they are having the greatest season in their franchise. And some might say, well, it's a coincidence. I'm not a coincidence guy. I'll just leave it there. But also, since I'm on the subject, just to remind you who you're dealing with, and because of the fact you can't email me so I can say whatever I want, <laughs> if you support the Patriots, you are supporting evil. Let's just <laughs> leave it at that. I had a woman last night come up to me, but I'm from Boston, and God saved you and brought you to California <laughs> as we go in. So... So Rocky Peak, it's good to be home. I have learned from these last two services, I am rusty as all rust can be, but what's beautiful is that Jesus is not. So let's see what this thing can do. Let's get back to work, all right? So inside your program, 
You've got a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to be able to help you follow along with the time of teaching. I also like to provide some uh, blank space in there, some white space for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right in. Jesus, I want to just thank you for the grace of this family, of this community, of how well they loved me and how that is the overflow of how well they've been loved by you. Jesus, I do not deserve these gifts and these blessings, but you have given them to me, and may I be a good steward of that. Father, as we get back to what I love the most, which is opening up the word and listening to your voice, I'm grateful that I get to come back and learn alongside my family. Jesus, as we dig into your word, my words may get someone thinking, my words may encourage someone, but my words, Michael's words, will never change a life. Your word will. And so again, I want to remind everybody of my place as the communicator. In the beautiful words of John the Baptist, may, uh, may I become less and may you become more. Jesus, we don't need to ask you to speak because you already are. As your family, we are committed to listening to the leading of our king. And it is in that name that we all said, amen. So this morning, we're going to continue this series we've been in for the last three or four weeks or so called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. Now, if you're here for the very first time, let me just take a few moments to bring you up to speed. What we've been doing is we've been intentionally focusing in the Old Testament, the second half of our Bible, and specifically, we've been focusing on an era that we've been calling the Kingdom Era, and within that, we're looking at 10 kingdoms events from the nation of Israel during the time of kings. Now this era began with the rise of the first king, a man named Saul, and he took the throne about a thousand years before the life of Jesus. This kingdom era lasted a little bit over four centuries to the last king, King Zedekiah, who ruled over Jerusalem when it was destroyed in about 586-87 BC. Now the heart behind this series is that we not only only want to better understand the story of Israel, but within that, we better understand the big picture story that the Bible is teaching for each and every one of us, for all of creation. And specifically, through this era, we want to learn some of the most important life lessons that we possibly can of what it means to follow well, to grow and thrive in our one-on-one -on -one relationships with Jesus by looking at the successes and failures of these key leaders in the history of Israel. And so with that, how I want to start this morning is I want to do a great re a brief recap because that context is going to add to the passage we're going to look at today. So there on the front of your note sheet, you've got a section that is titled beautifully with Star Wars inspired language, the saga so far. Now, I'm not going to dig hard into these. These are the last three weeks of teachings. We're just going to briefly look at the central truth from each one of those weeks. If you haven't been here or missed one of these for whatever reason, I would highly encourage you. They're always on our YouTube page. They're on our website. They're on the Rocky Peak app. But if you start there with King Saul, what we learned is that partial obedience is not obedience. 
what we learned with King David is the important question of is it a good idea or is it a God idea? Last week, as Michael talked about King David's son, King Solomon, we learned very clearly that compromise kills. Now, if you look at the accounts of all three of these kings, you see a recurring theme, and that's your fill-in, listening and following. Listening and following. The difference between the success or failure of each of their kingdoms was in listening and following to the leading of King Jesus in our life. Something Michael said last week that I found so beautiful was that we haven't really heard until we have obeyed. We need both to be able to do this well. Now, what we need to understand, we need a bigger vision that listening and following to the leading of Jesus is not mere behavior modification. When we say that, we are not simply saying, stop doing seemingly bad things and start doing seemingly good things. What we mean by listening and following is engaging in a regular, genuine, one-on-one relationship with our King Jesus. It is not behavior modification, but it is character transformation. Listening and following is how the Lord transforms our hearts to be more and more of what he originally created us to be, which is a beautiful reflection of King Jesus in our lives. And what we've seen so far in the series, what we're gonna see today is that listening and following is the key difference between experiencing life and experiencing death and destruction. And so we're going to get ready to go into our passage, but before we do, we need to do a little bit of context setup. We need a little bit of foundation because we are getting dropped into the middle of an epic story that has been unfolding already. And so if you open up your note sheet, you've got a section titled, The Kingdom Divided. Solomon's sin allowed the nation of Israel to become fractured. What we're going to see today is the full division of that kingdom into two separate kingdoms. And so there in your note sheet, I'm starting with a verse that Michael talked about last week. 1 Kings 11, 11 through 12. This was the, what God said to Solomon. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude... And you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. In other words, since you stopped listening and following to my leadership in your life, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Would you underline the word subordinate? That's going to be key a little bit later. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. And so that was the prophecy. And now that Solomon has passed and his son takes over the throne, we're going to see this prophecy come true. And so what I want to do again before we jump out is I want to give you a brief overview, a movie trailer, so to speak, of the two key players we're going to be following in our account today. The first one, your first villain is this. Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son who succeeds him as king. 
When the nation splits into two kingdoms, Rehoboam becomes the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And so we're going to see in our passage that the key question all of Israel has is what kind of king will Rehoboam choose to be? Will he continue in the path of his father or will he create a new kingdom, a different opportunity? And so you see on your note sheet there, it doesn't come as a big surprise, Rehoboam has no inner desire to follow Yahweh or the way of the covenant He makes choices in accordance with his own values, which he learned through his father. Parents, this hurts. As much as our kids may rage against us, they will become us. The truth is they are not looking for us to be perfect. They're looking for us to be genuine and consistent. And so that's our first main player. The second one needs a little bit more of a setup. Your second film is Jeroboam. And for my sake, I needed to write them down because I kept interswitching their names. So Jeroboam. And he is a former subordinate. Remember that word? A former subordinate. He used to work under King Solomon who became an adversary of Solomon. And when the kingdom split, Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, the king of Israel. Now let's talk a little bit about Jeroboam. He's first introduced in chapter 11 of First, king, of, of first, king, uh, first Kings. And the big ten tension point between the north and the south is this issue of conscripted labor. So this is involuntary labor. In essence, think of it like a military draft in which you didn't have a choice, but you were called to come and work for the sake of your kingdom, to help build, to help it expand. Now, in and of itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, when we are introduced to Jeroboam, he is a key leader that is one of the key leaders of labor under Solomon. The problem was that Solomon was wicked in how he spread out the burden. And so the northern tribes bore a disproportionate burden of the labor, of the conditions, the working conditions of the taxation. It became the northern tribe's sole responsibility to take care of the entire kingdom. And this was unfair. And so Jeroboam stepped up and opposed Solomon in this. And what ends up happening is that Jeroboam is fl- flees. He's exiled to Egypt or else Solomon would have killed him. Now, one thing you need to keep in mind is that Jeroboam's, uh, Jeroboam being an adversary to Solomon, his opposition was a good thing. He was standing up against Solomon's sin. But just like Solomon, as we're going to see today, is that Jeroboam starts strong when it comes to listening and following, but he's going to display the same flaw that destroyed Solomon, which is compromise. Look how it's put in your note sheet. God gave Jeroboam the grand opportunity of establishing a lasting dynasty Unfortunately, Jeroboam was an extremely able but unworthy man. All his subsequent actions demonstrate the mentality of a man 
who was determined to achieve his own ends and ignore God. Would you underline those two key words? Ignore God and his ways in the process. Would you write this reference down? 1 Kings 11.38. I'm going to come back to that later, but I want you to write that down so we can see what went wrong with Jeroboam. And so now that we have this foundation, now that we've identified our key players, we're going to go ahead and jump into our passage. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you have your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in the first half of our Bible, the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 11. And all the way at the end of chapter 11, we're going to be starting at verse 41. So 1 Kings 11, 41. And as you're turning there, I just want to say two quick things. One, as I often say, if you've got a physical Bible and a pen handy, if you've got a highlight function in your app, get them ready because we're going to mark this passage up. But the second thing I want to say is that this is a long passage we have this morning, and I'm going to be moving very, very fast. And so one thing that I would highly encourage you, but to be honest, not just for this, but I would encourage this every week with the passages we talk about, is carve out some intentional time today and sit with it. Read through it, because I'm going to skip around a little bit as well. Take it at a slower pace and absorb as we go in. So... Chapter 11, starting at verse 41. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the books of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Verse 43, there he rested. Would you underline the word rested, which is a really sweet way of saying he died. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, as we stop right there, this is a massive turning point in the, in the story of Israel and in biblical history because we just came from the united kingdom and we're heading into the divided kingdom. As Solomon passes away, his legacy is deep fractures in this kingdom. And so the question being asked of Rehoboam, again, what kind of king will you choose to be? There is an opportunity before the new king to lead to a new level of unity and a new level of peace. And so as we start in chapter 12, Rehoboam went to Shechem which was a key city in the history of Israel in Genesis. This was a key city in the life of Abram, who became Abraham. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he had the whole assembly of Israel. Would you underline that? Whole assembly of Israel, meaning he, these were the ten tribes of the north. The whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Would you underline that last phrase? We will serve you. And so everyone sees the opportunity. The northern tribes have asked Jeroboam to be their representative. And I really respect how Jeroboam does it. He approaches the new king and he respectfully but truthfully acknowledges Solomon's sin. Your father put a heavy, unfair burden on us. 
and he asks, would you lighten it? But he shares the willingness of the northern tribes to still work, to still serve. They're not saying, we need you to completely let us off. They're not asking for perfection. I'm sure that there would still be things they would need to work out in the health of their relationship together, but they're asking for a new start, a new beginning. Again, this answer will answer for them clearly what kind of king will Rehoboam be. So as we continue, verse five, Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So Rehoboam is going to seek counsel from two distinct people groups. The first one, verse 6, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders. Would you underline that? The elders who had served his father, Solomon, during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant, would you underline that? You will be a servant. If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. And so let's unpack this. So these elders Think of them as an official advisory council in these royal decisions. They were likely a collection of royal officials or nobles or guardians of the nation, and they had served under King Solomon. And so how do we sum up the advice that they had given Rehoboam? By saying, they told him, be a servant leader. This is how to lead well, by being a servant leader. Your job as the king is to love your people well. Your job is to serve your people well. And if you set the example in the model, then they will follow that and in turn love and serve well themselves. And while we don't know for sure I have to speculate and believe that they advised Solomon to do the same and he chose not to. I have to speculate that their hearts hurt from the fractures they saw due to Solomon's unwillingness to listen. And they see this opportunity for a beautiful new beginning. See, the advice they gave Rehoboam is biblical. How does Jesus lead us? by being a servant leader. And so as we continue, verse 18, but Rehoboam rejected, would you put a box around that word? But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men, would you underline that? That's the second distinct group. The young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. And so let's unpack this a little bit. So this designation, young men, doesn't actually necessarily mean their age. 
There's many scholars that actually believe that Rehoboam was in his early 40s when he took the throne. But this is likely indicating the people, the men that Solomon grew up with in the palace, that they were the children or relatives of officials, of guardians, of, uh, of, of, of uh, influencers of the king. Likely some of them were sons or related to the elders that he first sought counsel from as well. And what was their advice? Be a dictator. Bully them. Inspire fear. If they dare stand against you, destroy them. Beat them into submission. Remind them that you're the king and that you and really us are born better. Can I say something tough right now, Rocky Peak? We are living in a world that is increasingly getting angrier and angrier about everything. And we are living in a world that chooses to approach their opposition in this way. But what is heartbreaking is we are living in a world in which more and more people who claim the name of Jesus are fighting in this way. You don't believe in Jesus? You want to oppose my Christian values? I will destroy you in the loving name of Jesus. <laughs> this is not how we are called to lead. Now, these young men grew up in privilege. And hear me very clearly, growing up in a sense of privilege does not automatically harden your heart and make you a bad person. But however their upbringing, they were never raised to show humility to other people. And humility is absolutely key when it comes to listening and following the leading of Jesus. We'll get more into that later. Now, one thing I do want to point on before we move out is remember I had you really highlight the word rejected? Did you notice the chronology that Rehoboam rejected what the elders had told him before he heard the advice of the young men? It wasn't as if he weighed both carefully and went, what do I think? No, what did he do? He found an echo chamber. He knew what he wanted to do, and so he found the people that would tell him, support him, yeah, that's what you should do. That's the way of God. That's how you should approach this. And isn't that true of us as well? That when we want to do something a certain way, whether it's sin, compromise, this vision, good things, but we don't want to ask God if this is how he wants to do it, what do we end up finding in echo chamber? And we will keep hunting and hunting until we find that person in person, over social media, wherever we can justify to tell me, yeah, you're right. Now, I could, get, I could stop right here and it could be really easy for me to get really judgmental about Rehoboam, but I have to stop and point the finger first at myself. I do this. We do this, especially when it comes to anger, don't we? So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but to sum it all up, Rehoboam followed the advice of the young men. He goes back in three days and verbatim does the whole, my finger, the yoke will be better, the whole scorpion's bit. And the northern tribes respond with a declaration of succession. 
What part do we have in the line of David? Obviously none. And they leave. And Rehoboam, we're not fully sure why, but in his pride, he sends one of his leaders of labor, likely to collect taxes, to the northern tribes because it seems like he was calling their bluff. You won't really stand against me. And the northern tribes responded by murdering this leader and almost killing Rehoboam himself. And it becomes a whole to-do because then Rehoboam's going to start an invasion, but God tells him, no, spend some time with the passage afterwards. <laughs> But for the sake of time, we need to jump ahead. That's Rehoboam. And now we're going to be looking at Jeroboam. And now the northern tribes have instituted Jeroboam as king. And so remember that question we were asking about Rehoboam? Well, the same question now applies to Jeroboam. What kind of king will you choose to be? And I had you write down a scripture a little bit earlier. See, God made a beautiful promise to Jeroboam. God prophesied to Jeroboam that one day you will be king. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this. 1 Corinthians 11:38. If you, Jeroboam, do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands. Again, to paraphrase, if you, Jeroboam, listen and follow, my leading in your life as David my servant did I will be with you I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you that is a big promise, isn't it? But again, we see the heart of God for all of us in every area of our lives that the most important thing about us is not first what we do, but the state of our hearts. The most important thing about each and every one of us is our character, good behavior, godly behavior. Righteousness is always the overflow of a heart that the Lord is regularly transforming. And so the Lord made this promise to Jeroboam, if you want to be successful for years and years to come, the most important thing you can do is focus on your character and everything else will come. And so let's go to verse 25, his first actions as king. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built at Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert. Would you underline that word? Revert to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. If, they, if, these, excuse me, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me. Would you underline those two words? Kill me and return to King Rehoboam. And so Jeroboam sets out to establish a distinct kingdom and also to establish himself as a legitimate king. And the very first thing he does is employing military strategy, which is wise. He begins to fortify key, series, key, key cities. But then he starts to focus on the worship of his kingdom. And all of a sudden, fear sets in. 
See, in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, was the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence dwelt. There were times in which all of Israel was commanded to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship there, to worship Yahweh, and regardless of the division of the kingdom, that was still the intent for God's people. And so now Jeroboam is sitting there going, if they fulfill their faithfulness to God, I will lose them. If they go to Jerusalem to worship, then they're going to go ahead and pledge their allegiance to Rehoboam, and they will end up killing me. If I let them obey God, I will lose everything I have built up for myself. And so what do we see? Compromise. And he continues. Verse 28, after seeking advice, would you underline that? Let me put a Dre note in there. After finding an echo chamber, (laughs) the king made two golden calves. Let me tell you something that the Bible is very clear on. If the result of your good plan or idea is creating a golden image of any kind, it is a bad plan. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, underline that. Here are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, underline that. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other one. And so you got to understand what's going on. What Rehoboam is doing is taking a page out of the playbook of surrounding pagan religions. In this time, it was very common in the surrounding religions to make golden animal statues. And a common image was calves and bulls and to have them be representatives of the gods' attributes. They often weren't seen as the gods themselves, but they were seen as the stepping stools where the gods themselves stood. In fact, that image of a calf or a bull was key imagery in the worship of the god Baal. And if you remember that Baal was one of the key pieces of idolatry that brought down Solomon. And so at its best, let's say that Jeroboam wasn't intending that people would actually worship these images as a new god. Let's say at its best, his intention was the invisible Yahweh stands on the backs of these gods. That would be similar to me as a leader trying to lead you to worship Jesus by using heavily recognizable Islamic and Buddhist imagery. At its best, whatever the heart and intent behind it, It was idolatry, and it led to massive confusion. But at its best, we understood why Jeroboam did it. And that was what I had you underline in verse 30. It became a sin, because what was his intention? I need to win at all costs. It was more important to win than it was to do right in the sight of God. 
And again, Rocky Peak, it would be so easy for me to get judgy about him, but I need to point the finger at me too. It is becoming so easy for us to take an attitude that God would want us to win regardless of how we get there and the compromises we make along the way. And like we saw with Solomon, we may think, well, it's just a little bit of compromise. But whatever frame it be, compromise kills. And we continue to see this. Verse 31, Jeroboam built shrines on high places and he appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. That's key because that is completely disregarding the law of Moses and who priests should be as laid out in the closing chapters of Exodus. So now he is again disregarding God's very word. He instituted a festival of the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made there. And at Bethel he had also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, keep that in mind, the month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he had instituted the festivals for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. And so something that Michael talked about last week is that Jeroboam is following Solomon's example by, by substituting human wisdom instead of divine direction. And so he's creating a parallel religion. It was a big deal to have these Jewish festivals and pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So instead of faithfully observing that command, he created his own festival. In essence, he went, hey, you know what? The southern kingdom celebrates Christmas in December. We're going to now do it in July because that's better from us. He has now created a new religious order, not based on what the word says, but based on what will keep him in power. He creates essentially a parallel religion that has familiar elements to walking faithfully with Yahweh. And he would probably argue, yeah, for the most part, it's the same, but it's only a few degrees off. And that's not really a big deal. Family, just being off by a few degrees will run your car off the road. And it leads to destruction. We're not going to cover it in the series, but Jeroboam's story does not end well. And so before we move on from these two accounts of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, I've already been saying this, but we need to acknowledge, this is me. This is us. We have been given these accounts because we can easily and emphatically relate to what they were thinking. See, Rehoboam displays how hard it can be, the temptation of listening to God when you're angry. Jeroboam expresses the temptation, the difficulty can be listening to God when you're scared. Have you noticed how often that when we face anger or fear that they don't remain individual, but they often mix together? And not only does that create barriers towards listening and following well, but it can create cycles. It can create systems. It can create seasons of disobedience in our lives. And so for some of us, their stories are beautifully given to us to be a cautionary tale. 
But for some of us, their stories are given to us because we are in those same cycles in our lives. And the opportunity the Lord has for us through his word is to break that cycle. And how does the Lord break those ingrained cycles? By teaching us what it truly means to listen and follow to the leading of King Jesus. And so as we unpack that there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Learning from the Past, the Essential Characteristic, and your fill-in is this, Unfiltered Listening. If we want to shatter the barriers, if we want to break the cycle of disobedience, then it's going to happen through engaging in unfiltered listening. Now, if you're new to Rocky Peak, that word unfiltered in particular has become very core to our DNA. See, what we mean by that is we all have a tendency, because of our sinful nature, to, approach, to place filters on the person and the teaching of Jesus. And these filters distort who he is and what his words truly mean. And these filters come from a variety of sources. They come from our own life experiences. They come from our own religious experiences and religious upbringing. These filters can come from media portrayals. It can come from our culture and societal norms. It can come from good things like our hopes and our desires. It can come from our pain and suffering. It can come from our expectation. But regardless of where it comes, every filter does the same thing. It distorts how we see Jesus and we end up seeing, and in many cases, we end up following the wrong Jesus. And so as a church, our call is to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. And how we do that is by going to Scripture and allowing the Holy Spirit to grab hold of those filters to shatter the way we see Jesus and to give us a much bigger vision of who he is and what does it mean to follow him. And when it comes to listening, as I said earlier, we need a much bigger vision that listening and following is not behavior modification, but it is engaging in a regular, committed, loving, one-on-one -on -one relationship with our risen king. There in your note sheet, I have a quote from one of my all-time heroes, the late great Dallas Willard. We must never forget that Jesus speaking to us, however we experience it in our initial encounter, is intended to develop into an intelligent, freely cooperative relationship between mature people who are, love each other with the richness of genuine agape love. We must therefore make it our primary goal, not just to hear the voice of God, but to be mature people in a loving relationship with him. Catch this last part, underline it. Only in this way will we hear him rightly. Our behavior, doing good things, acting in righteousness is the overflow of a relationship, a regular relationship with King Jesus. And if we want to engage in unfiltered listening, 
it means engaging in, in, in that personal relationship. And that will make all the difference when it comes to experiencing life or experiencing death and destruction. And the reason why this relationship is so key is because it empowers us to do what we never thought we could do on our own. And one key way it empowers us is that it gives us the strength to approach God with humility when it comes to what we want to do, the direction, what we feel is best. Humility is not thinking the worst of yourself. Humility is not thinking, I am the lowest and everybody else should be better. Humility is showing strength and courage and learning to ask the question, this is what I want to do, this is my way, but God, is this your way? And I got to be honest, there are times in which showing the humility is easy. And there are times in which showing the humility to ask that question is one of the most difficult things we could ever be asked to do. And what I have found in my own life is the correlation that it is much more difficult the more passionate I am about something. The more passionate I am about a conclusion or a direction or a goal or a sin or whatever it may be, it is those times in which I try to bring God's wisdom down to my level and go, of course I'm listening. Of course this is the will of God. Of course this is how he would want me to do it. Of course God is okay with my compromise in this time. And it's in those times in which it becomes increasingly difficult to change my mind and in those times what I need is supernatural intervention what I need is King Jesus to speak to me in his unfiltered voice and it amazes me how quickly hearing the unfiltered voice of God shatters what I once believed so vehemently to be true let me illustrate it in this way if you've been around Rocky Peak, if you've been exposed to me, you know that one of my favorite things to do in life is to read. Ever since I could, I have been a big, big reader, and I love to read anything. As a kid growing up, still to this day, I read comic books, I read fiction, nonfiction, whether it's fantasy, historical uh, epics, uh, biographies, how they made these movies, things about giraffes, whatever it may be. <laughs> If it's words printed on a paper or a screen, likely I'm going to read it. Now, at the risk of sounding arrogant, because I'm fairly well-versed in books, I think that my opinion carry weight if I, wait, if I were to say something is a literal, literary masterpiece. And with that, what I want to present to you is what I think is arguably the greatest literary masterpiece of all of human history. And that's this. Now, if you're sitting in the back in the, in the nosebleeds, I see you. This is Green Eggs with Ham. Excuse me, Green Eggs and Ham, written by a scholar, a philosopher named Dr. Seuss. Now, you might be wondering, why are you talking about this? Well, the premise of this book is amazingly relevant for what we're talking about today, isn't it? If you're not familiar, the book follows this gentleman or weird cat creature and throughout the book, 
he is vehemently sharing his worldview. By a young Sam I am, he is given the opportunity to interact with, to experience this green eggs with ham. And the way his world works, no. Our world would be better if I didn't do this. Our world would be better if that never existed. And the more he is given this opportunity, the more he digs into that viewpoint. No, I will not do this. That is not the right way to do things. I will not budge. And again, he just digs in and screams and huffs. Allow me to read. It goes as such. I could not, would not on a boat. I will not, will not with a goat. I will not eat them in the rain. I will not eat them on a train. Not in the dark, not in a tree, not in a car, you let me be. I do not like them in a box. I do not like them with a fox. I will not eat them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. And what's really interesting about the strength of his viewpoint is he's missing one key thing. He's never actually tried it. <laughs> and near the end of the book, he finally relents and he tries it, thinking, this is going to ruin my life. And his entire world changes. And he vehemently declares, I was wrong. That is not how the world works. I was wrong. And in a humorous way, why do I share this illustration? Because this is us. Because how many times have you found yourself, how many times have I found myself vehemently declaring, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus would want. Jesus is okay with this. This is what Jesus has called me to do, only to never ask him in the first place. When I look at my own life, there have been times where I have dug in, I have declared, I am listening. This is God's will for my life. God does not want me to forgive. God is okay with the sin in my life. God God does not want me to show empathy. God does not want me to serve. I don't have that time right now. I have dug in and made these declarations only to get drawn to his word in scripture and immediately be confronted with a radically different Jesus than who I was following. And what I notice is it's in those times that I find myself following a filtered Jesus that I realized that how that happened was I fell out of step in my regular relationship with him. You learn his voice from time, from presence, from being where he is. You know, my whole life growing up, and I'm convinced I could still do this to this day, I could be in a crowded area. Imagine how crowded the walkways at a Disneyland get. And no matter how many people, no matter what the noise, above it all, I could always hear the voice of my mom calling out to me. Why? Because I knew what it sounded like. Because of how much time we had spent together. And so with that, as we close our services, I want to give you two quick questions to reflect on. 
And that word reflect is very intentional that you may need to sit with these. The Lord may call you to spend intentional time sitting with these before you answer. But understand that the Lord is not calling you to reflect on this to shame you. Holy conviction is good because it is an opportunity. It is the Lord saying, I want to be with you. And so the first question is this, your fill-in is, are you intentional about listening? Are you intentional about listening? For anything in life to be healthy, our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, the health of any type of relationship we engage in, it requires intentionality. Health in any form does not just happen. Intentionally learning, excuse me, learning to listen and follow does not fall in our laps. It is a relationship, and what is the key ingredient to the success of a relationship? Commitment. And so are you committed to intentionally creating the space to learn to listen and follow the unfiltered Jesus in your life? And one key way that I want to do, continuing how Michael shared about this last week, is that probably the most essential way is by spending time in the Bible. We will never, and this is a strong statement, but it is a true statement, we will never learn how to truly listen to the voice of God without the Bible in our lives. Because the Bible was not given just to pastors or scholars or elders or super Christians. Understand that the mark of maturity of being a Christ follower is not that you're never tempted, is not that you don't sin and stumble, is not that your life doesn't go into extended periods of suffering, is not that you somehow walk on water, but the mark of maturity is that you are committed to learning how to listen and follow. Why is David always regarded as this amazing king when you look at his life and he did horrific things at times because he repented. Because he always came back to a posture of listening and following. And that is the model and the freedom that we need. Michael described it last week that scripture are the guardrails of our life. And so when it comes to scripture, one of the most important things we could do is learn to establish a regular rhythm. That when it comes to my life, being in the word daily is simply what I do. And through that, acknowledging that this is the voice of God for all people. This is the voice of God for me, and he will choose how to use his voice in our life. Because a temptation and a trap that we fall into is there are times when we go to Scripture, and what we are looking to is a very specific piece of guidance. We go to scripture and we're looking for it to say, Dre, here are exactly the three steps you need to do to fix the situation with your kids or your finances or in your relationship. And if we don't find that, we close it and move on and usually find an echo chamber. But as I share from my own journey these last several months, 
When the Lord began to heal me internally, one of the things he had called me first was to reestablish this rhythm of being in the Bible because I hadn't been. And at the point, I still didn't have my mental clarity and faculties fully back. And so I'm like, okay, God, but you know I can only do the bare minimum. So my free YouVersion Bible app, I grabbed the first like seven-day reading plan I found, and I'm like, okay, five minutes a day. And I was beautifully blessed and shocked at how seemingly unrelated scripture was used by the Lord specifically to talk into my situation. Many of you have experienced the same. Establishing the rhythm is the priority first. It is the voice of God and he will beautifully choose how to use it in your life. So, my question for you to reflect on under that is not what your giant step is, not what your giant leap is, what is your this size step? What is your next step to establish that intentionality in your life? Second, Philip, are you seeking counsel that is listening? We have been designed to be communal beings. We have been designed to walk in community. We have been designed to have other people speak, that God will speak to us through other people in our lives. It is a beautiful thing. But again, as we saw with both Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the temptation is, are we seeking echo chambers or are we seeking people that love us truly and therefore will go and listen to the Lord on our behalf? Don't get me wrong. People that think like you do can be a wonderful gift. Like-minded people in community can be a beautiful thing. But even within that, are there people willing to go, hey, that sounds great, but I'm going to go before the Lord on your behalf and let's hear what he has to say. Is there anyone in your life that loves you enough to beautifully, genuinely, and respectfully disagree with you? Is there anyone in your life to beautifully say, that sounds amazing, and it sounds like that's what God wants you to do, but maybe you need to slow down an hour. Maybe you need to slow down a day. Is there anyone in your life who will say, I will listen for you in this? And that's hard, isn't it? Not because they're not out there, but we don't want it. Because the more passionate I am about something, the quicker it hurts when someone disagrees with me. And I don't want to experience that. You know, not that long ago, my wife lovingly was telling me that I was being too stern with our oldest in this particular area. And when she said it immediately, 100%, she's absolutely right, but it still hurts. And we don't like that feeling, but this ties into the first one. When I have an established regular rhythm with Jesus, what he is regularly doing is expanding my view of the world. 
And he expands my view of wise counsel to not see this disagreement, this pause, this act of listening as adversarial, but as being loved well. And so, how do you establish this? It starts here. You are surrounded by imperfect people who are on the same path of learning what it looks like to listen and follow. And so when it comes to seeking out the people that are trying to learn to listen, your first step is here. Maybe your first step is committing to be here regularly in the weekend services as we unpack scripture together to hear the unfiltered word of God. Maybe your next step is next time we have the openings to join a life group to get together with a smaller group of imperfect people who are learning to listen and follow the leading of Jesus together. Maybe your next step is to serve, is to join First Impressions, to serve in kids ministry, to be part of Celebrate Recovery or another ministry like that so that you have the opportunity to meet other wonderfully imperfect people who are learning to listen and follow the leading of King Jesus. But just like with the first one, I'm not asking you what your leap is. I'm not asking you what your giant step is. What is this size step? Maybe for some of you is knowing you have those people and saying thank you for being that person in my life. Maybe for some of you going, I have been mad at you for months but thank you for speaking truth into my life. And so as we wrap our service up, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And specifically, as I was coming back to this, I asked them to sing a song that's familiar to us called As It Is, which is a Hillsong United song. And it's a song, again, as I mentioned, it's familiar to us here at Rocky Peak. But this song was really instrumental in my healing and in what the Lord used in my life. And it has these wonderful lyrics like, I'll sing like a man with no sickness in my body. Like no prison walls can hold me, I will sing like I am free. But also it has these lyrics that weren't just powerful to me, but I think are gonna be powerful for so many of you. Whether now or then, death is not the end. Some of you are facing something that you think that's the only way I'm gonna get out of this is death. For some of you, though the road seems long, and some of you would say, I'm on the longest road I've ever been on in my life, and I don't see an exit coming anytime soon. Though the road seems long, I will never walk alone. It goes on, and though the night is dark, and some of you are here this morning in the darkest night of your soul. Though the night is dark, heaven holds my heart. And so let's declare the beauty of our unfiltered Jesus together. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you lead, you guide us, and through it we become more like you. It's amazing that we can be transformed to reflect our beautiful King Jesus even in the most painful and darkest circumstances of our lives. We can thank you, Jesus. The transformation doesn't await when we exit this road but it happens during the journey. And so as we go into this final song, as we receive our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we thank you for your goodness. 
We thank you for your power, for your faithfulness, that you are not abandoned us. As your people, we are committed to learning more and more what it means to listen and follow, not because it's going to transform our behavior, but because primarily it is going to transform our hearts. And that is when we experience life. It's in your name, King Jesus. We all said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak.